Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I'm really excited for you to meet my guest today. I get to speak with Gary Novello Jr., who I was actually introduced to by my guest from last week, Diana Gajic Physic, who is actually setting some records on my interview with her, where we talked about demonstrating value of fraud prevention and trust and safety with other departments within your company and executives. And I am hearing a lot of great things about that episode. And I'm not surprised. Diana has, you know, as I mentioned on that episode, Diana has become a good friend of mine. And she's also a great people connector, which is how I met Gary. And similarly enough, they both are passionate about internal and external collaboration. So in my conversations with Gary, we also talked a lot about how important it has been in his first year in online fraud prevention to really work with other departments within the organization, maybe in a way that hasn't been done before. He's able to kind of play the new guy card, but it's really interesting. And his approach is a little bit different than Diana's. So I think it's good to talk to multiple people and get different perspectives and approaches because one approach may resonate with you more than the other. And this is a topic that doesn't get discussed enough except for maybe in hallways of conferences. But when was the last time we all stood in a hallway of a conference? So that's one thing that I really try to do in this podcast is try to provide content and conversations about things that I know will help you do your job better. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Gary Novello. Up until taking this role with Macy's as their director of fraud strategy and analytics, he was in the in-person asset protection for stores like Home Depot, Bloomingdale's, and uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. When he was at Bloomingdale's, the vice president of risk strategy asked him to, he did a lot of work between the stores and online, and so asked him to consider this role. I was really fascinated by his mid-career shift and how that worked. And really, I'm always fascinated by people who come to online fraud from a different perspective whether it's from the issuing side or from the acquiring side or anything like that. And in this case, it's from in-person loss prevention to online. And I often think that they're very different, but Carrie helped me see that there's a lot of similarities. So I think you'll really find it fascinating because this is a perspective I certainly hadn't talked to before. Someone who's done both. He's going to talk a lot about his experience with in-store asset protection. He was there for 18 years and how he successfully transitioned into online digital fraud prevention for strategy and analytics. Some of the biggest differences and similarities between physical loss prevention and online fraud prevention, honestly, there were a couple that I was like, oh yeah, that is true about online fraud protection. I haven't thought about that before. So that was really good conversation. How his experience in stores has benefited his team and organization at Macy's in the online space, and changes he's made to the online fraud strategy and processes at Macy's based on that perspective. 
And he's made a lot of progress. I can't, you know, and he can't talk about all the specifics, but this is a guy to listen to. I really, I definitely relate to his ability to, and his passion for finding root cause analytics and then driving down into the problem and solving it. And he's done a lot of it in this past year. And then we end this first part with tips for vendors in the space after he attended his first in-person frog conference over the summer. I think there's a little something for everyone. <laughs> and this is just part one. Next week, you'll get to listen to part two of my conversation. We definitely went over and I had a feeling we would, but there was just so much to talk about. So next week, we're going to talk more about how he's been working with cross-functional teams to get data and buy-in that's needed to implement new technology or understand problems better. Why he thinks traditional retailers are more willing to adapt noticeable processes for in-store loss prevention, but are often against adding any kind of friction to online customers for the same purpose. This was a question I've had in my head for a long time, so I was really excited to get to ask somebody who has seen both sides and understood that it's okay for there to be metal detectors in a store and an armed security guard, but it's not okay for us to put in a one-time password. I've always been curious about that. He'll also share some really crazy fraud stories that honestly, at least one of them should inspire a documentary. And he also shares advice for other people considering shifting their industry or role mid-career. I think that is advice everyone can learn. So in both part one and part two of my conversation with Gary, I think you will find a lot of really interesting points that you can apply to your role no matter where in the fraud prevention ecosystem in e-commerce and in mobile you are. So with that, I am going to let you listen in on my first part of conversation with Gary Novello Jr. Today, I am grateful to have Gary Novello Jr. join me from Macy's to talk a lot about, you know, some of his perspectives and his career journey, but also we're going to, we're going to touch on a lot of really good information. So if you're in fraud operations, fraud strategy, you're going to want to listen up. Gary has over 18 years experience, primarily focused on in-store loss prevention for brands such as the Home Depot, Bloomingdale's and Bed Bath & Beyond. Last year in 2021, he made the transition from in-store loss prevention and asset protection to the digital and online side of fraud prevention for Macy's as their director of fraud strategy and analytics. Gary has his LPC, which is loss prevention certification and CFI, certified forensic interviewer certification, and is currently studying for the CFE, which if you don't know what that stands for, certified fraud examiner test. Gary, welcome to Fraudology. Thank you for having me, Grace. My pleasure. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, your career path is more unique than a lot of people in online fraud. And I have found over the years that anyone that comes to this niche industry from another perspective can add a lot of value. It just provides another way of looking at things. So I was really excited that you were interested in joining me and special shout out appreciation to your comms team for allowing us to talk on the record. So I really appreciate it. We're just going to dive in. Can you share a little bit about how you went from a career focused on in-store loss prevention and now becoming the director of fraud strategy and analytics for Macy's? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I started in loss prevention when I was in college, actually. You know, while I was studying college criminal justice, got a job at Home Depot. 
I actually started in the receiving department, believe it or not. And I had, I had a knack for spotting bad guys. You know, sometimes you talk about like what, you, what you're good at. One of the things that I picked up quickly, like vibes on people, patterns. So when I would go outside for breaks, so I'd be walking through the store from the receiving department, whatever, I'd always seem to have a kind of beat on a bad guy and seem up to no good. I started calling those things into the loss prevention department. And then eventually I got recruited into the loss prevention department. I had a, a friend of mine's brother was in that loss prevention field and kind of got me in. And then once I got in there, which is a typical path for a lot of the loss prevention professionals out there, you get hooked. You know, you're catching bad guys every day, externally, internally, you're learning how to kind of operate in the law enforcement channels of getting those bad guys put behind bars. And it really changes you, kind of what you do every day and makes it really fun and exciting. And then you, you continue down that journey, hopefully to some kind of managerial role. I started my first executive level role actually at Macy's many years ago. Got brought into there and that's, you know, where I learned a lot of my business acumen. You know, I learned how to be a leader. I learned how to develop people. I learned how to understand the industry as a whole and what, what we can do to impact it from a loss prevention perspective. And then as I moved into higher levels of that, you know, into district levels and regional levels, you start learning the art of influence and, and how to really move programs uh, the right way. And, you know, fast forward to about four years ago when I made my first corporate role at Bloomingdale's running the investigation department there. That's where I first got introduced to fraud in a bigger way. I was responsible for fraud mitigation in store, which had a lot to do with the influence of some of the data that would come in from the fraud side of the business and, and how we can make a difference in the store with that. And um, I'll be honest, at first it was completely overwhelming taking in with a fire hose. And there's a lot of acumen and stuff that I was unaware of and how they use data and what certain things that were impacting transactional stuff just didn't make a whole lot of sense at first. But the good news is I had a lot of data at my disposal at that point. So once I did, I kind of reverted to kind of what I like to do and what I, I feel like I do best, which is root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. um, kind of breaking down the vulnerabilities, finding out where they're coming from, and then leveraging the data to find out where I can strategize that. And it worked out to do very well in my position there. I had a lot of great mitigation efforts, had a lot of bring back to the bottom line dollar within the Bloomingdale's company at the time. And then I was fortunate enough to have a position open for this director of fraud strategy and analytics, open up over the past a year and a half or so, blessed to be put into that position now where I can make a bigger impact as a Macy's and company through Bloomingdale's, Macy's channels, Blue Mercury, all the different brands that are impacted by fraud. So here I am today. This is just for my own knowledge, but also for listeners. Bloomingdale's and Macy's are the same company, correct? They are. They're all under Macy's and Macy's, correct. That's what I thought. Okay. So it was it was an internal move, but from one brand to the other, and certainly from a different perspective of loss and, and theft than you're used to. Yeah. So I, I got a piece of Macy's experience and then also Bloomingdale's experience. And now I'm on the, we call it the MCCS side. So the, the corporate financial side of Macy's Inc. as a company. And that's where I live and breathe today under the asset protection umbrella. You and I have had a lot of conversations leading up to this interview, mostly casual. I mean, we did have a prep call a few days ago that almost went two hours, maybe a little over. So that's why I, I have a feeling this is going to turn into a two-parter, but we'll just see where it goes. So I know some of this, but just asking on behalf of the listeners as well, just like when you were in store loss prevention, you didn't have as much insight into the workings and, and the tools that were at the disposal of online and all of that. 
I'm in the same boat where I don't have as much knowledge about in-person loss prevention. And I think a lot of my listeners don't. So there's some obvious differences. We're looking at data and maybe behavioral patterns and biometrics. You know, we we're just talking about how there's technology now that can show you how far away you're holding your phone from your face and different ways that you're typing in your password. And are you right-handed or left-handed? But we aren't seeing the people. We aren't looking for human behavior in that way. So obviously, and in store, there's some advantages, but obviously disadvantages as well. So you have cameras, we have device, you know, there's just different, there are different tools to look at behavior. From your perspective, what are some of the biggest differences between digital loss prevention and in-person loss prevention? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It, it's, it actually, it's a different in a whole lot of ways, but it's also very much the same in a whole lot of ways. So the, the difference really is the identity side of it. When you come to fraud, it could be anyone. It could be a mock for like creating yeah. a problem. In store, it's a, it's a physical being. Someone is coming in and doing it, the transaction, whether they're doing it through some kind of identity theft way, it's still a person that's conducting that transaction. Mm-hmm. And on the online side, on the reverse side of that, it could be anything. It could be a synthetic fraud situation. It could be a account takeover situation. It could be a person, it could be a bot. There's a lot of different variables that play into that, that make it difficult and challenging in ways, but then gumshoe physical in-store stuff is no easy task either. You're limited by the technology. You're limited by the resources and the people that um, can do the job and do it well. So whereas technology is an advantage online, where if you have the right technology, the right systemic fix, and that could make that fraud problem you know, go away really quickly or at least mitigate mm-hmm. it in a, in a large way. Mm-hmm. We can't do it that easily in store because bad guys do change their tactics and are mobile and mm-hmm. they can do different things in different stores. So again, very different, but very similar. And I think mm-hmm. you have to consider the velocity of impacts. If you mm-hmm. have a, a major theft in store, when I say major, meaning like there's an organized retail crime kind of involvement where mm-hmm. they're sophisticated and, and they're planning things ahead of time. Yeah, it could, it could be a large number. Internally, if you have an internal collusion with an associate, it could be a very large number, but the velocity you can do in fraud in just a short few minutes, a short few hours, a day or two can take the whole year to create in that kind of loss of shortage and theft. So the velocity of impact was something that was a big difference for me in the very beginning is how quickly we lose money in in a very vulnerable situation with fraud. Hmm. So that, that makes it very critical, Stake um, very, very urgent, stakes are high. Yeah. So you have to make sure that you kind of on your P's and Q's with what the vulnerabilities look like and what we can do to respond to that very quickly. And I, I think those are some of like the major early differences I've seen just in, hey, you can strategize a bit differently with some groups that are out there, both sides of the coin there. But if uh, a group's got a hold of you and a big vulnerability and fraud, they're going to do major damage very quickly. Yeah. I think another similarity is that Oftentimes, bad actors in general, whether it's in-store or online, often they get to know your policies and procedures and just how things work within your company, sometimes better than employees, especially in like one single department can. And for in-store, I can imagine they would get to know a specific location, right? Like, oh, this store manager always goes all along or whatever it is, right? Long breaker, whatever those things are, there's camera blind spot over here, whatever that is online, 
they're sharing that with everyone and everyone can go to that location. And so it is definitely, you know, they also know your your processes or at least what they can exploit. So the gaps, right? Another you know, difference I thought of is while in-person loss prevention, you are solely protecting the product. And I would imagine that the way that you're looking at shrink that way with online, there is a payment transaction involved. They're paying for it, but are they going to pay for it forever, right? Is it their payment instrument or is the person who owns that payment instrument going to call? Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Call their bank in a month and say they didn't get it. Both in both scenarios, the retailer is out the cost of the item and they never got payment for it. Online, however, there are other costs associated, like chargeback fees, like potential chargeback fines and fees for hire. There's shipping. You've already paid for shipping. You've already paid for the customer service. You've already paid for all those things. So it can actually have a higher impact on a dollar value impact on the company as well. Now, is there less overhead for online? I mean, it depends on the company because it still takes employees and other things to do it, but you're not paying necessarily for a physical presence. And that's why I said the resources is where you know, yes. the struggle comes in because you need a lot of extra resources to make cover the vast size of a building, right? I mean, just to have coverage or cameras or, or things. Yeah. And don't forget either, there's a customer implication with yeah. fraud, right? So the branding side of it can yeah, be right. terribly in hmm. a bad situation for any company. If you have a big fraud issue, if you have a big breakout of fraud where a lot of accounts are, are, are being compromised, not, they have a lot of cleanup work to do. You have branding implications. I mean, so it, it really can have like a, a ripple effect through many different disciplines on the fraud side. And I'll give you another one for fraud and, and the difference in stores also like in stores, for the most part, close. And when they close, it's hard for a shoplifter or 
an internal theft situation can happen on an overnight team, sure. There are break-ins that do happen overnight as well. Yeah, specifically last couple of years, mm. more that than ever. But it still doesn't even come close to what some of these bad guys do overnight because online doesn't shut down. So mm-hmm. you, could, you could have a bad guy that they start at midnight, you know, mm-hmm. and there's even ones now that it's not even bot-driven. It's it's actually physical people that are placing orders manually right. um, to avoid bot detection yeah. programs and things like Human that. Human bot so, farms, yeah. So it's a 24-7 operation with fraud. And again, you have to be on your P's and Q's. We're very fortunate to have a, a very talented team here that is constantly on these kind of patterns and, and these developments. So for any other retailer or just industry out there that's dealing with the same kind of thing where you're 24-7. Yeah. I mean, that takes a, that takes a lot of effort and a lot of good planning to mitigate those kind of things from becoming big problems. Hmm. That's a really good point. I mean... I know these things, right? But when comparing it to something that's that's similar, it just shows the impact more, right? I think also with in-person, and and I could be wrong about this, but there's generally one way to steal. I mean, I think there are a few other ways, but you know, you're you're taking merchandise out of the store, right? Online, you can use stolen payment methods, you can do refund fraud, you can do promo account abuse, you can do account takeover. Like there's a lot, there's multiple different types of fraud, as well as lo- multiple different types of loss to your revenue that still has a big impact on the company and benefit to the bad actor. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a couple of different methodologies you can do in the store to steal. It's not just a physical in the store, out of the store mm-hmm. kind of situation, but they all do require some level of a action, you know, yes. whether it's through a POS or through a door you have to take it out of or whatever, there is an action there where online, there are so many more variables on just yes. how they can do it, where it just, it makes it very complicated for folks to mitigate. It's a constant. So And it changes again, based on company. Yeah. It's not as static as, as other types of loss prevention or anything else, because online fraud is going to vary so much based on your average order value based on the customers you target, based on the resale value of the items, the business model, the geography. There's so many pieces that can vary and make that fraud very different and vertical. And and if it's a digital good or a physical good is just one aspect. Whereas in person, there are standard ways. Now there's always going to be variations of those standard ways. And some companies may have for instance, when only a few companies implemented buy online pickup in store, those guys definitely experienced different types of loss than the retailers that weren't. But this painful process for everyone. a million years ago. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Yeah, about 10 years ago. Yeah, for sure. So kind of drawing off of that, and I think I just said it earlier when I introduced you that I think that people who can at just different perspectives. The people who can add new ideas and fresh approaches to fraud prevention are those that enter the industry with a different perspective. For me, it was from the acquirer side. I also fell into it by accident. I think that's the best way to do it. But these days now, there's newer generations coming in on purpose. But for a lot of us, we just were super curious and started becoming an asset to the risk department, the fraud, you know, the loss prevention, et cetera. And then like a moth to a flame and then, <laughs> and then we're stuck. We got the bug. But, you know, how has your experience in retail loss prevention benefited you in your current role? 
And I know this is a big yeah. question, but it's really something I think a lot of people that are currently in lots on the online side can learn from because you're looking at it from a different lens. You're coming to this job with a different set of skills and a different way of looking at it. So I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. I think it's a great question. And I think you know, oftentimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for a lot of the leadership and development things that are transferable across any discipline or a- anything we do in life, really, for that matter. And what I could tell you is in my experience set, there's probably three main buckets that I've learned quite a bit of things to help my career along and just impacts kind of KPIs for results. And those would be investigations, of course. I'm super inquisitive. I'm tenaciously inquisitive. If I don't know something, I need to know it. I have to understand how it flows, how it operates. That's how I really get to that root cause analysis that I was explaining before. Just finding the vulnerability is going to come by being inquisitive. You, you have to just question everything and make sure you genuinely understand it and that it makes sense for it to happen. Second thing I would say is collaboration, which I think is where a lot of folks struggle just working in silos and not really collaborating in, in a big way that's going to help them reach certain goals. Certain people have the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. Certain people have the priority list on projects or funds or things of that nature. So being able to collaborate with those people in, in a really positive way, not just in a, hey, I need to talk to you way, but just in a, hey, let me explain to you what my pains are here, what, what I'm struggling with, where I would love to see this. Do you see any kind of correlation to your world there? Is there something we could work on together with this? Is there something I'm missing that you could fill in the gap for me here that would make sense? Hey, can you bring me in on that next enhancement you're doing so I can make sure I have my kind of seat at the table with thoughts on it and make sure I understand it before it rolls out? Those kind of things really play a huge role in what we do from the in-store side, from the investigation side. And then when you get to a fraud, you know, corporate side of finance and different folks that work in that part of the industry, being able to be collaborative and being engaging is, is such a huge part in that process. And the last thing is, which is probably the fundamental biggest thing for getting the result is being able to influence people and making sure that you could bring to the table why they need to be involved in this, why they have to spend money on this and why this is important to the company's best interest. And some people are very good at it and some people struggle with delivering that from a communication perspective. Have you lined up the data so that it makes sense that they can digest it? Are they bought in from the beginning side of that? Do they understand like what you do and why you do it? And influencing them to just be on board with you, even if they're just a sponsor for you, they don't have to necessarily be a decision maker, but they could be a sponsor for you in, in your journey there and what you're trying to do. And those three main things, I think, carry over across all businesses, you know, no matter where you're working. So if I want to work in operations, I would bring that same kind of leadership stuff over there. And say, hey, I know how to get to root cause analysis. I know how to collaborate. And I know how to influence the business with some of the data that I have. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you have to kind of stake in the ground of your pillars. Mm-hmm. And then everything else is a learning environment. Everything yeah. is, hey, I don't know fraud. I don't know what the vernaculars are. I don't know exactly what the issuing bank's requirements are and the SLAs and, and all those different things, but I'll learn. And when mm-hmm. I do, I'll fold back to those pillars and say, okay, I see where there's an opportunity here. I know what I need to go talk to about it. And I better deliver it the right way or I'm not going to go in too far with that kind of program. Mm-hmm. So that's really where my yeah. kind of lies. 
A hundred percent. And I think we should dive in a little bit more on that because as you know, our friend that we have in common, and I think she actually initially introduced us, Diana Gajic Physic was on last week's episode and she is so good at collaboration internally and externally. And I know that you both have had a lot of conversations about both and you are also a part of the retailer, the bi-weekly retailer call that I that I host when you're able to join. And that's totally everyone who's a part of that. It's whenever they can come, they do. And it's always really great when you do, because you do have a different perspective at it. But, you know, if if I didn't know that you'd only been in online fraud for a year, I wouldn't have thought it because you have caught on to a lot of vernaculators, 100 percent, but also because you understand what's important. And I think root cause analysis, you know, and collaboration are two things that get me very excited as well. Two things I really love to do. And so I think that's one reason why we get along so well and talk for so long about things. But on the influencing people and collaborating internally, that's something that a lot of people in fraud really struggle with. And I know, as you mentioned, it was really important in your in your previous role to do that. And so you understood just how important it is, how you alone, you as Gary can't do everything, but working together and, and for a common cause, you can get so much more done. You don't have to share the specifics, but I'd love for you to share an example or two of challenges or things that maybe traditionally your department wouldn't ask others for or would just assume wouldn't be helpful or something that an initiative that you had to do just some of your approach on working with other teams, going to finance and saying, hey, this is why it matters or getting an extra data set from another part of the organization that maybe other people just wrote off as like, oh, this is theirs. Like I said, you don't have to share like specifically what the initiative was in, unless you can. But I think examples often go a long way. Yeah, I think in the world I live in now, analytics is, is such a hmm. big part of my routines, my everyday functionality. I, I use the data to guide me on that root cause analysis on where we're vulnerable on what we need to do next, what's urgent. And even on this team here, I mean, I have some of the most talented people on the planet working on my team. I'm so blessed to be honest. And even them, they didn't have everything. We had some data sets that just weren't available at the time for us to do a few other things that we could maybe enhance or look at things a little differently to be a little bit more efficient. And from the early parts of that, it was like, well, that's on a you know, different team or hey, we don't know it. So my old thing is, well, then let's go get it. Oh, let's go find it. Who, who has, somebody owns it, right? I mean, it's, it's a data set that's out there and I, I would love to have my fingers in it. So, and that requires being, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or knocking on some doors and talking to people. You've Especially never during COVID because you're several states away from the majority of people in your organization. So it's not as simple as just walking by their office like we did in the old days. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not a knock and chat anymore. Now it's, hey, can I hit you up on Teams? Hey, you got a quick minute for me. I have no idea who you are, but I would love to just talk to you for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then that might not be the person, by the way. You might talk to them like, hey, that's not me. You have to talk to so-and-so. And that's fine too. Yeah. You know, he's going to pass me to in the right direction. So I'm on the yellow brick road looking for Oz. So at the end of the day, <laughs> I'll get there. It's just it, sometimes you have to be patient. You have to just be tenacious and keep keep pushing until you get what you want. And then eventually, and this is where the, the, it comes full circle. Sometimes it's easy as just asking. Mm-hmm. I find that when I finally get to the person I need to talk to that has the data I'm looking for, 
I just say, hey, can we have that data so we can add it to our pool of information that we can look at? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And within 24 hours, we have access to that database or whatever it is that we're looking for. But it, it requires legwork. It, it requires you to kind of just keep an at it and being okay with a couple of no's in there that people might have told you. And if you know it's important to you, then you should go get it and just mm-hmm. make your case on why you need it. And eventually you'll get there. And We've done that a couple of times just in this past year with certain things. And I think it's been invaluable mm-hmm. in how we've been able to look at the data and be able to really produce a level of uh, confidence in the information we're sharing and, and what we're trying to do with it. And I'll even double down on that where some of the things that right away helped us was being very transparent with that data and not holding it too close to the chest with certain things. If it's available and it makes sense to share it to the right teams, don't hesitate. I think it's only going to help educate them on what's happening in the fraud space. And I think the more people you bring on board with that from the business side of things, whether it's the field or senior leaders, the better. I mean, everyone should be aware of fraud. It shouldn't be hidden in a closet in a drawer somewhere with a key thrown out the window or buried in the garden. You yeah. should be able to talk to people about it, explain the vulnerabilities, where we're hurting from you know, certain parts of those vulnerabilities, and maybe how they can help impact that through any type of methodology or process or program that they're involved in. And that's really how you're going to get true buy-in, I think, from people and credibility. And in that tenaciousness and in the pursuit on the yellow work road of trying to get, you know, meet your objective, I imagine that you have to not assume that they know the why behind it, right? You have to kind of take a step back and say, hey, this is why it's important. This is my mission. This is this is why it's important and it impacts all of us. And you probably have a better appreciation or maybe appreciation of an outsider perspective of, wow, I never knew that fraud was so impactful, right? You probably like the fact that it's 24 hours, the fact that all these other pieces that it can have such a huge cost on the business and that it can happen in so many different areas. It's not just the payment flow. It's not just at transaction level. What would be some advice that you would give people that are that have been in their role for a while and feel like, well, other com- other departments should know, you know, what I do or or they haven't. Or maybe they just haven't pursued it. Where how would you suggest that they they get started on that? To, are, you, are you referring to communicating? Yeah, communicating internal fraud. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. To get finance buy in on new technology, for example. Yeah. Right. Like. Hey, we didn't budget for this. Well, guess what? Like fraudsters yes. don't have to ask for budget. And I didn't know that they were going to do this attack mid-year, you know, that kind of thing. Like, we'll just use that as an example, right? If if there was new technology that you identified and were able to say, okay, this is going to help us here and potentially X percent going to finance and asking for that when the budget's already been set. That's just a hypothetical, obviously. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think if, if I was explaining to anyone that was asking my advice, they saying, Gary, you know, how can I, how can I do this effectively and give myself the best shot? I'd say first is why not be players are every business model is different, you know, in, in companies. So in the finance department might own the budget, certain people, they might have the operators own the budget, depending on where that falls, but you have to know who's got the purse. That's first. Mm-hmm. Second thing is I think that you need to offer something that's not only digestible, but it's going to make sense when it comes to numbers. Anyone that's holding the strings to a purse are numbers driven mm-hmm. people. They're, they're not yeah. people that are built on emotion. For the most part, they are built on just strictly numbers, bottom line dollars, how this is going to give me return on investment. So it would behoove anyone to just take that project on with that mentality. 
and say, if I really want this product, I want this new technology, whatever it might be, you have to do a complete operational business analysis on the dollars of that, what's going to cost you and what you're looking to get out of it. And you have to explain that through the vulnerability of how it's going to fix that problem and what the X factor is if you don't fix it versus what you'll do if you do fix it, plus minus, right? Here's the end results. And if you can deliver it in a numbers driven way to the person that's potentially holding the strings to the purse of that, or at least that person has a seat in getting you on a priority list of that. Right. Those are the people you're going to want to talk to. And yeah, exactly. As I mentioned before, the sponsor thing is just as important as a person making the decision, right? Because if you get more people involved, and I like to do that often, I'll I'll make a quick little two, three page deck of something and just say, hey, we run this by you and let me know what your thoughts are. And I explained, yeah, Gary, it makes total sense. Like that, that sounds like we'll make a lot more money on the back end if we do that. I'm in agreement. Now I have a sponsor that might, because I'm the decision maker of this, but at least when I go into that conversation now, not only will I have confidence, but if they say, well, is anyone else? Said, yeah, well, I, I brought this up to Paul. I am, Paul is complete in agreement that that this makes sense. If you want, we can bring him in and see, get his thoughts too. Yeah, then they have momentum. You have more people collaborating on it. You have a sponsor, you have a couple of people that are willing to kind of back you on what you're presenting. And at worst case scenario is they say no. Mm-hmm. Let's say they turn around and say, hey, we just don't have the money in the budget right now. Okay, that's fair. Maybe we're at a different part of our life cycle of investing in anything. But then you either say, well, if we were able to do it, is this good? Is this something that you would want to move on? And if the answer to that is still no, then you should probably ask why. And you should say, well, what, what is it you need or what are you looking for that's going to help help me get to this level of effective vendor, effective technology that, that's going to give you this result? And let them guide you on what you have to do as homework. I would say oftentimes that it's really just a matter of if, if the spend is there, because if you laid it out the right way and they have the money to do it, anyone that's in an operational finance world would say, hey, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, let's, let's go ahead and do that. Or let's put that on a, on a list for Q3. Let's put that on a 2023 list, you know, for Q1, whatever the case might be, they're going to be on board because it makes sense from the finance side of it. Yeah. So you, you have to, you have to speak that language. I mean, that's the only way you're going to move the needle. A hundred percent. And I think a lot of people that are on the vendor side are listening to this as well, as I think they should. I don't think vendors do a good enough job of arming the people who have to go internal into their company with what they need in a non-salesy way and and even just asking the merchant, well, you know, who else do you need to talk to internally? What do they care about? How can I help you and support you with that? But also I, I know a lot of merchants are too, because this is a struggle all the time is especially these days, there's more technology popping out of the woodwork all the time and you don't always know what exists. And so sometimes you're like, oh, wow, this could really help with X problem but uh, I already put my budget in or, oh, we don't have, you know, whatever. And there's just so many other teams you have to work with, right? Cybersecurity, implementation, devs, getting dev time can be very challenging, especially for, well, especially for companies that aren't native to digital like yours, right? And I Mm -hmm. see all the time, the big differences between prioritization between companies that started out brick and mortar and their infrastructure is primarily focused on that, but they also have a tech arm versus the companies that started out online 100 percent you know they're not 50 year old companies but they're a little more nimble <laughs> and they have a little more understanding of, of tech and the developments and that yeah we put in a tool three years ago but now it's outdated and the fraudsters have learned how to game it we need to up our game 
So there's just. It's funny you mentioned, and I'll give a plug to your retail um, industry too. If you really want to throw like a fourth slide in there, yeah, throw an in, throw an industry comparable. Oh my gosh, you're kind of what the industry is doing. If they're on, like, if you have four or five major retailers out there that are already doing this, you throw that at the end of your slide that you're explaining to the decision maker or the sponsor. It's going to be an absolute game changer, no brainer. Like, because. Anyone that's going to get that ROI mm-hmm. on the return end, the industry is already leading that way. I mean, you, you'd be silly not to jump on board. You know? Oh, yeah. And that happens a lot on those calls is, hey, is anyone else doing this? Like implementing, I don't know, I'm just pulling something out of thin air, 3D secure in, you know, X country or whatever. Right. And other people saying like, oh, yeah, we did that. And this was the result. Or, yeah, we did it. And it didn't work that well. Or it did. Getting that buy-in and then being able to be in a meeting. And I remember this is when I was a merchant, being able to say, well, our competitor is already doing it or somebody else that I know my CEO values a lot. I would totally leverage my industry contacts for that and just say, oh, you know, I already talked to someone before on the flip side saying they've got this problem and they're not patching it up. So if we patch it up, I mean... I don't like to play that game where if we patch it up, they're going to get the bad guys. But that's the that's why I care so much about collaboration, right? Getting everyone in the room. But if there's a company that doesn't want to be in the room, they're going to be left behind. And that definitely sure. happens. So, you know, I thought you brought up another good point, Chris, with the vendors. Hmm. You know, I think you have to be careful not to make the goals too long term with any company. Hmm. The bad actors do change their methodologies. <laughs> yeah. And if your results for this particular module that you're putting into a company is going to give me a five-year return, I might be on the second, third year of this going, hey, we got to change this up. Yeah. So it either, either has to be flexible or it has to be short-term kind of, hey, look, we're going to do this for a short-term yeah. time with you because we want to be ready for the next kind of change in behavior for the bad actor. And I think that might be a better- So that short-term right? impact, which can- yeah drive loyalty as well. Yeah. And I think additionally on that kit for vendors to continually to innovate because merchants don't want to have to keep working with a different company and having to go externally. They'd much rather work with the existing partners for so many reasons, including contracts and technology and who, setting somebody up in your AP system, right? Like just all of those details. It's so much easier to work with a company you already have an existing relationship with. And if that company was acquired or something like that and innovation stalled, that makes it harder too. So there's so many vendors that go for these contracts because a lot of them are long-term, but you definitely should be showing return on investment in a yeah, or incentivize a different way where hmm. if it stays long-term on this particular behavior that we're mitigating, then great. You'll have a long-term result just based on this, but right. flexible enough where you say, but if they shift, if they change and pivot, we're able to flex out and change this model so that we can do X. I think that's where you're going to have a big win. And I, I'd probably also venture to say <clears throat> to your point that don't give me a square problem to fit in my circle symptom at my company, right? At the end of the day, every company is a little different. So I think that the the vendors have to pick up on, yeah, generic overarching what is out there and what they have to build around as far as what would be most impactful to the, to the industry. But also you have to have a little flexibility in there for the uniqueness of a company and then what's going to help them. And you should probably ask more questions instead of 
selling me on what you have, more of tell me what you need. I think that'll go a long way with a lot of companies. And then you'll probably introduce a lot more conversations around that kind of stuff. And sometimes, like you said, you could work into a relationship where, all right, you can do this. You can help this particular problem I have in my company. And then maybe we can start piloting things and looking at seeing what the results of that might be. And that might be, I think I mentioned this to you in some of the talks, that might be that Jerry Maguire approach, but Mm, at the end of the day, that's how you build credibility and that's how you build loyalty with some of these uh, retailers out there is you're genuinely in it to win it with them. And I, I want you to fix your problems with me, not here's my, here's what I'm delivering. Does this work for you? Mm-hmm. I think that that approach is going to get you a handful, but it's not going to get you in deep into some of these companies. Yeah. Yeah. Being flexible to know, okay, this, so Thinking of a real world example, I know of a vendor that works with several retailers that had retailers coming to them saying, hey, we need a solution for this new type of problem. In this case, it was different kinds of abuse. And that vendor created it because those merchants were very important to them. And now they're they're advertising it and selling it and marketing it. And technically, the merchants came up with the product idea. And so is that is a benefit for the vendor as well. And I know you know who I'm talking about, but you know, I don't say names, so that's good. But there are also negatives as well, obviously. There can be such thing as too asking too many times, what are your problems? What can we do? What can we create? I also know some salespeople that just will be like, Oh, we can build that for you. Well, can you really? Because <laughs> people are gonna take you for your word. And then once they sign a contract. Uh, you better be delivering on what you said you could build for them. So it always goes both ways, right? And I do think it all goes with building trust in a relationship. Mm -hmm. There are so many new solution providers out there over the last five, 10 years that it can be very overwhelming for merchants. And you know, I've talked about this, that most salespeople don't realize that maybe 1% of your job is to respond to their emails and you're getting hundreds a day almost sometimes. Full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, yeah. And it's not personal either. Needs, no. You just you can't get back to every single person. You know, so it's, you know, don't take it personal, guys. Right, right. <laughs> well, um, you best believe they'll be hunting you down at the next conference. But it's good. It is, it is important for merchants to learn what's out there. It's also important for vendors to listen to merchants. And I don't think that happens as... Well, as it could, but I work with a few, a handful of solution providers that I've worked with to kind of explain to them a little bit more about like, well, this is how, this is how we work, right? Like, this is how my, my people are like, and you're not going to build a great relationship just on one cold email, right? So, you know, going out of your way to, to do that is really important. You know, we kind of took a left turn there, but I thought it was a good. No, it's a good uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a good point. And I think because I would say about 75% of my listeners are, are merchants or fintech or they're the merchant record or however we want to say it. But there's like a healthy 25% that that listen to help understand the merchant role. And I think the people that are in that 25% are smart. They're hiring um, the right, they're in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. So I think they're able to learn what merchants care about. And I think that's so important. It's the difference between, I say this all the time, but the difference, a lot of solution providers will read the owner's manual of a specific version of a car. This is totally an analogy. They're reading the owner's manual. So they know 
kind of how the car works and everything else like that. But until you've actually driven the car, you don't know exactly when you need to tap the brakes at a red light. You don't know sure. exactly how loud the radio is or how bright the light headlights are or whatever that is. And so sometimes those of us that have driven the car can provide a little more color and uh, nuance to yeah. those that, that haven't. That's my perspective. <laughs> agreed. No, agreed 100%. And so well, you do have a moment, take advantage of it. Like, you know, exactly. give your best pitch, like make sure I'm intrigued. Like if right. you give me something I don't hear. You know, every <laughs> All the buzzwords, like a know? buzzword yeah. salad that doesn't do it for you. Oh man, that's not, I mean, I had a half an hour call with a company that I'd been curious about their technology uh, yesterday, actually. And it turned into longer than a half an hour, but I still could not tell you for the life of me what they do. I asked every way I possibly could, who's your biggest competitor? Where do you sit in the infrastructure? Like, are you looking at, I cannot tell you what type of tool they have. And I, I can tell you that they think it's very complex and that it is not as, it, it does a lot more work than the other guys, but I can't tell you what that work is. And I am so frustrated. I mean, I literally was like, oh, I just felt afraid of it. I don't. And I felt really bad for the guy that, you know, yeah. the call because it was kind of hijacked by someone else. And that's fine. I mean, it happens or whatever. I think I was concerned that maybe my gender had something to do with it because I think there was a generational difference. But also just I can understand complex. Like, just tell me what you do. And I know there are so many merchants who will walk the floor of a conference pre-COVID or even the few that have happened since. I know other people like these, but I don't understand what they do or who they do it for. You know, I'm actually working with a few vendors to prep for the big uh, upcoming fraud online conference because they're rusty and they don't know how to talk about it in a way that merchants understand. They use all these high level words and it's like, okay, but what are you? Like we have buckets in our head of the types of tools we need in our risk stack. Which bucket do you fill? Which problem do you solve? Can you solve multiple problems? So are you chargebacks? So are you disputes? So like, what, where are you? Yeah. yeah. Right, right. I mean, there are some chargeback guarantee companies that some merchants think are chargeback management companies because of the way they talk. It's, I don't want to be confused when you're talking. I want to be very clear. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, and I definitely am working with a few to do that because I think that it's a service not only to the vendors, but to merchants too. I don't, you don't want to waste anybody's time, right? And it's... A missed opportunity if someone tells you we blah, 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 high level, and it's really complex and we do a big, good, great job and our customers are happy. Okay, but I don't know if I need you if I don't know what right. it is, right? Like, it's not going to go anywhere, right? It's like, well, that was intriguing. You know, let's yeah, move on to someone that can help us. <laughs> yes, I was definitely feeling like, oh my gosh, so many people have told me that they've had calls like this, but I never have because usually I can really like, I just snap. Sorry, guys. There's that. My mic picked that up too loud. Oh. Uh, but I was like, oh boy, that might sound loud in the mic. I just like, oh, this is how other people. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.